Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Before I get started with today's episode, I wanted to give a quick warning. Um, This is actually going to be the first of a three-part series, and all of them will be uh, mentioning scenes of violence. They'll be pretty pretty violent. I'll have to mention some graphic details. Um, Also, there will be mentions of sexual assault and explicit language. So listener discretion for this one. Uh, It's probably not a great one for the kiddos. So now that I've said that, uh, this is a complicated case. It will take a lot of detail for you to fully understand all the aspects of this case. Um, So I'd love to hear from you all at the end of this one because it's an interesting look at things like nature versus nurture and um, pharmaceuticals and the role that they play in people's decision making and behavior. Um, We'll also talk a lot about the workplace, workplace violence, workplace stress, um, things like that. So uh, let me know what you think at the end. This is going to be one you really have to strap in for. This is the story of Joseph Westbecker. Our story today starts in the late 1980s in Louisville, Kentucky, and we're going to start by talking about this company, Standard Gravure, and it was in downtown Louisville. It was connected to the Courier-Journal building on one side, and then on the other side was WHAS 11. And I want to tell you all about what it was like to work at this printing plant. Um, It was not great. So... It was dark, um, it, it was like working in a basement, and it was very claustrophobic, um, especially being a folder operator, you had to squeeze into this tight machine. Um, it was very loud, very loud, and the whole time you're breathing in all sorts of junk in the air, all sorts of bad fumes, um, and it's very high stress too. It's knowing that if you make the tiniest mistake, it could cost thousands of dollars. Um, Speaking of those solvents, though, breathing in those, those chemicals, it was causing all sorts of side effects, including impaired concentration, liver enlargement, irritability, headaches, insomnia, loss of appetite. Uh, it wasn't good. And so regularly, they would have to escort these employees out of the printing plant, and they'd have to take them to the cafeteria and have them chug like a sugary lemonade or something to get them to feel better before they could go back to work. Um, it was dangerous in other ways too. It was not uncommon for press employees to lose fingers. Um, and there were different positions you could have. For example, you might be a realman. Um, they would load the paper rolls. Or there were ink men who made sure that the ink was right in terms of like thickness and color. And then there was the folder man, the folder operator. This was a little bit higher up job because it was very stressful and it was very dangerous and it required a little bit more skill. So folder man was the best job you could have at the press, but again, most dangerous. Now, standard gravure, um, a little bit before our story takes place, was really a big deal. It was a big operation, like 20,000 books an hour. And then some of the roles got automated, and they could churn out upwards of 70,000 books an hour. And they would operate around the clock. And 
Most employees who weren't replaced by machines were working three 16-hour shifts in a week plus three eight-hour days a week. So 80-hour work weeks down in this dark structure that's claustrophobic, it's dangerous, it's stressful. And most of the information that I uh, used for this episode, these episodes, was from a, a book called The Power to Harm, which was written by John Cornwell in 1996. And he studied this case really hard. And so he, too, looked at what it was like to be working at Standard Gravure in the late 80s. The environment was pretty rough. Um, It was around that time that people started bringing guns to work. It just became a normal thing to have a gun on you while you were working. People were drinking and selling drugs on the job. There were loan sharks. Uh, People were stealing from the plant and from one another, so you might get robbed. Uh, Lots of fights. Everybody was fighting. They would slash each other's tires in the parking lot. Um, It was just no good. It wasn't good. So one employee in particular at Standard Gravure was Joe Westbecker. And I'm going to tell you a quote here that uh, is about Joe. This is from one of his co-workers, and this is how his co-worker remembered him. Quote, Joe had been up on the hill. That's what we call it in Louisville when a guy gets admitted to Our Lady of Peace Mental Institution, up there on a hillside near Newburgh Road. Somebody had written on the wall of the break room, Problems? Call Wes Becker. 585. Nuts. He wasn't just hurt. He wanted even. They called him Sex Becker because he liked to brag about his sexual exploits down at Parents Without Partners. They called him Pillsbury Doughboy because he looked like the cook on the TV commercial. The pale face, the paunching, the paunch sticking out of his t-shirt, the giggling tee-hee. They called him Sweat because he was always perspiring. And he had a kind of standoff fight with Jim Mitchell in the media and mix bar. We called him Rocky. Sarcastic. He got upset when people yelled at him and tried to, like, diagnose him. He thought they were singling him out to work the folder. They played practical jokes on him, sabotaged the reel, threw a bucket of water over him while he was taking his break by the machine. So, that quote can help you kind of get an idea of what it was like to be Joe Westbecker working at Standard Gravure. How he was treated, how he treated other people. So, now that you know that, I want to talk a little bit about... um, Joe and his psychiatrist that he was seeing at the time. So this was a man named Dr. Lee Coleman. From uh, He was from Hopkinsville. And on September 11th, 1989, Dr. Coleman was concerned. Joe Westbecker was clearly not well. He seemed generally out of control. He was having severe mood swings. And Dr. Coleman hadn't seen him in a month. And he seemed to have gotten much, much worse since the last visit. And Dr. Coleman considered him a casualty of the workplace. He knew that a lot of what was happening was because of Joe's workplace stress. Even though, as you'll learn, Joe had been on long-term leave for a year. Anyway, uh, Dr. Coleman's first, first session with Wes Becker was way back in July of 1987. And even then... Years ago, Wes Becker had reported feeling depressed because of his job, 
and the way he was treated by his employers. Now, Westbecker had been an employee of the printing plant for 17 years. That's a long time. And it started off okay, but over time, it just got worse and worse. And it, it sounds like even though he had worked there for so long, he was still being assigned the most difficult and dangerous jobs. Now 47 years old, the years of stress and anger and anxiety were starting to really catch up with him. He was struggling with insomnia, lack of energy, um, he was having trouble remembering things, and Coleman was also considering a schizoaffective disorder because Wes Becker was becoming very isolated, he was having discomfort in social settings, and he was becoming increasingly detached from reality. We're going to talk more about Joseph Westbecker's entire fairly tragic life story a little bit later on, but for now I just want to give you a little bit more of his um, more recent background and some of his medical history. So Joe Westbecker had been divorced twice, although he still spent some time with his most recent ex-wife, Brenda. Uh, He had a place near Iroquois Park and she lived a little further out at Blevins Gap. Westbecker had two sons that were both from his first marriage, and uh, both the boys were now in their 20s. His younger son, James, had a history of exposing himself sexually, and we'll see throughout this that that becomes a huge issue in Joe Westbecker's life and causes um, a lot of stress, puts a lot of strain on him mentally. Um, Now, there were other reports from Westbecker's doctors that he had seen prior to even talking with Dr. Coleman. And they all had written various reports about his anger issues, schizoid personality traits, and even his suicide attempts. Dr. Coleman had been trying to figure out the right pharmacological combination to best suit his patient. Um, And we have his entire trial and error process recorded. So we can see that over the years, Westbecker had tried at least the following, and I'm not a pharmacist, so I'm sorry if I mispronounce some of these. Valium, Percodan, Indocin, Alavil, Norpramin, Nevane, Trofanil, Lithabid, Pamelor, Halcyon, Deserel, and Restoril. Those are just some of them. Now, sometime in 1988, Eli Lilly reps had visited the office of Dr. Coleman promoting Prozac. On August 10th, 1989, Dr. Coleman started prescribing Prozac to Westbecker for the second time. Okay, he was supposed to take 20 milligrams of Prozac per day. Um, It had just hit the market in 1987, Prozac had. And the first time Westbecker tried it was in the summer of 1988. And that first time that he had started taking it, he took himself off of it after just two days. He said he did not like the way it made him feel. We know, though, that overall, Prozac was an instant hit. I mean, Prozac nation, right? Everybody was depressed. Everybody took Prozac. Um, It was thought to have fewer side effects than other antidepressants at the time, and it worked fast. So that was a huge um, drawing point. Um, On that September day in 1989, 
Westbecker was now five days into his second course of Prozac. He'd taken 25 capsule over the preceding 25 days, and he now had 15 left in his supply. And after meeting with him that day, Dr. Coleman was like, you know what? You might be part of the small fraction of people who experience agitation as a side effect. And then something really interesting happened. So Dr. Coleman said, hey, you, we got to get you off of this. I, I want you to stop taking it immediately. And Wes Becker begged him to let him stay on it. And he said, it's really important that I stay on it because it's helping me remember things. He said, it helped me remember this incident at work when they, quote, forced me at Standard Gravure to perform sex with one of the foremen. The foreman forced me to perform oral sex on him with my coworkers watching. That was the price to take me off the folder. Now, from what I understand, Dr. Coleman thought this was for sure a, hallucina a hallucination, not a memory, um, for, as a side effect from the drug. Um, so Wes Becker continued to talk about this with Dr. Coleman, and he was sobbing at this point, and he said he decided to file a lawsuit. And when he said that, Dr. Coleman asked him if he would be willing to check back into a hospital. He, he was like, you're not, you're not stable. Um, you got to go in, into a hospital again. And Joe said, absolutely not. I'm not doing it. So the best Dr. Coleman felt he could do was to ask Wes Becker to please quit the Prozac, come back in two weeks, and bring someone who can vouch for how he'd been in that time, how he'd been acting since he got off the Prozac. And so Joseph Westbecker was like, okay, sure, I'll bring in Brenda. She'll vouch for me at my next appointment. However, there wouldn't be a next appointment. Fast forward two days to September 13th. Wes Becker picked up his youngest son, James, uh, took him to get breakfast before school. And James was on a home incarceration program because of the indecent exposure. And so he wasn't allowed to drive himself anywhere. And his dad took him to school. And James remembered that his dad seemed uh, in a pretty bad mood that morning until James told him that he was accepted to a master's program. And that kind of brightened Joe up a little bit. So Joe dropped his son off at school, and then no one saw him again until he picked James up again that afternoon around 3.30. And James said that something weird happened on the way home from school that day. He told Joe, his dad, that he needed money for a book for school. He, need, he needed to get a new book for school. And instead of like saying, okay, son, like we'll take care of it, Joe Westbecker stopped his car in the middle of traffic on a busy street to reach into his pocket and pull out money for the book. Just a weird little detail. Um, anyway, around 7.30 that night, Westbecker showed up at Brenda's house in Southwest Louisville. They went out to dinner at Jesse's family restaurant on Dixie Highway. Brenda said she remembered him being too nervous and flustered to eat. When they got back to Brenda's house, she said he just paced around her property. Uh, he asked to spend the night. Uh, he called James around 9.30 to say goodnight. And when Brenda went to sleep that night, Joe was still upstairs pacing. Uh, the next morning, Brenda woke up at 7 a.m. Joe was already awake and ready to go. 
and she said that when he left her house on the morning of the 14th, he said to her, quote, thanks for being a good friend. Thanks for always taking care of me. By 8.30 that morning, James was concerned that his dad hadn't shown up yet to take him to school. At 8.37 a.m. on September 14, 1989, Joseph Westbecker appeared in the elevator at Standard Gravure, which was strange because he had been on long-term leave. He was wearing jeans, a gray bomber jacket, and he was carrying a vinyl gym bag. He exited the elevator revealing a semi-automatic assault rifle in his left arm. He raised the weapon and took aim. 24-year-old Angela Bowman watched bullets riddle the body of her co-worker, Sharon Needy. And then Bowman herself was shot too. Wes Becker picked up his gym bag, containing a bayonet, four additional guns, and over a thousand rounds of ammunition. After shooting four different women in the front office, he headed to the elevator to go down to the plant basement. He shot at three more men who were also approaching the elevator. He moved toward the tunnel that connected the plant to the Courier-Journal building and the stairs that led to the press room, and he went past that and onto the basement press room where paper was loaded to be sent to the press room above. A 49-year-old pressman named John Tingle actually considered himself a friend of Wes Becker's, and when he crossed his path, during the rampage, Westbecker told him to get out of the way. Westbecker passed Tingle and the two men Tingle was working with, so he let the three of them live, which is really interesting. Just beyond that, Westbecker found another pressman, Richard Barger, and I guess they weren't as friendly because another person hiding said that they could overhear Westbecker say, quote, I'm sorry, Dickie before shooting him five times and stepping over his lifeless body. Wes Becker made his way all the way to the newsroom, where he shot several more people. Now, I'm going to read you some of Angela Bowman's testimony about the scene when the police arrived that day. Remember, Angela Bowman was one of the women in the very first room, that front office, uh, when he got off the elevator. So here's what she said. Quote, Then cops just started coming, and there were, like, cops guarding us because the ambulance people came right away. An EMT woman started working on me, and she kept saying to the cops, cover me, cover me. She thought they were going to come back in there and shoot us some more. And I could hear the cops' radio the whole time and the stuff they were saying because they were trying to flood the building with policemen. Then these SWAT guys come rushing in, leaping over my feet and going all around me. They had special vests over their uniforms, and they were all carrying big guns. They were just hollering and cussing and screaming. I suppose they did that to flush the guy out or make him make a move. They were just screaming profanities as they ran through and dispersed all through the building. Well, I just kept thinking, he's coming back. And they did too, I guess, because everybody was scared. After being shot that day, Bowman was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Next, I want to read a quote from Patrolman Joseph A. Ball, who had been walking past the Kentucky Theater on 4th Street when he heard the call. Quote, I went through to the press area and into the break room. Everywhere I went, he had shot all the fire sprinklers, and there was so much blood that it looked like a river. 
It looked like a river of blood. And here you're walking through it, and, you know. But there was something that you had to do. Then I saw Joe Westbecker, a man I knew for years. I saw him lying face down in a pool of blood. I was so mad that he wasn't man enough to face up to what he had done or get help. I wanted... I wanted to kick and stomp him. I wanted to just do anything I could, but, you know, you just... You just don't... Just everything went through your head. I just figured I probably could have helped him if he would have talked to me or something like that. You know, I thought maybe I failed or something to that effect. But God, it made me so mad that he did what he did, you know, with all this... All these poor families that he tore up. Not only in standard gravure, but the people that are involved in the police department. Some of them will never be the same again. I won't never be the same again. And then one more quote, and... This one is from Dr. Steve Henry, who was an orthopedic surgeon downtown at the time. Quote, Nearly all the victims were in the emergency room or coming in at the time. They were all in within a space of about 30 minutes. We just started doing triage, sorting casualties into categories. When an injured person comes into emergency, the trauma surgeon is responsible for triaging a serious injury and deciding if they need plastic surgery, orthopedic surgery, neurosurgery, or all three or four or more. There were so many people coming in that we were triaging any orthopedic type problems ourselves because there was an emergency staff for each person. In the 36 hours following the shooting, over 100 doctors were performing eight surgeries at a time. Seven people had already been pronounced dead before they arrived at the hospital. So Joseph Westbecker had killed himself before the police or anybody could get to him. So they were at the morgue analyzing Westbecker's blood and brain tissue, and they were trying to figure out exactly what medication he'd been on. Um, and the coroner, Dr. Richard Greathouse, determined there was both lithium and Prozac in Westbecker's system at his time of death. The levels were right around what a patient might normally be prescribed. In the days following the shooting, when preparations were being made for a formal inquest on the victim's deaths, Dr. Lee Coleman was refusing to hand over his notes from Westbecker's visits. So they actually had to get a court order to get his notes about Joe. Now, two weeks later, a man named James Lucas came forward with new information. And James Lucas is someone who will come up a few times in this story. And he told reporters that three weeks before the shooting, Westbecker, his friend and co-worker, told Lucas that he had a list of people he intended to murder at work. And here's the crazy part. Lucas warned everybody. He told his co-workers and even the head of his department at work, and nothing was done. People in the press room all knew about it, and they didn't think anything of it. Um, there's some differing stories about whether upper management actually ever heard about this or not, and we'll get more into that later. But the coroner's inquest, uh, that convened on November 22nd, 1989, so a little over a month after the shooting. And what they needed to do was reach a verdict on how the victims died 
and survivors and relatives of victims attended this, and as you can imagine, it was an incredibly painful day for a lot of people. Uh, they had to play videos of what happened and, and what it looked like that day inside Standard Gravure, and witnesses told their stories. Now, there were conflicting reports about the degree of job-related stress Wes Becker was carrying or suffering. Some witnesses said yes, he was working on the folder all the time, which was extremely stressful. His son said that he had a letter stating his father was working on the folder right up until he went on that medical leave for a while the previous year. Those in management or, or leadership position, uh, positions like Mike Shea and Gordon Scherer, they testified that he hadn't worked the folder since August 1986, which is years earlier, and that in the more recent years, he'd worked on the paper reels, not the folder. And they said, you know what? He seemed pretty content with his job. So then at the inquest, the topic was shifted from workplace to the medication. Um, a man named Dennis Clark from a group organized by the Church of Scientology came in to testify that Prozac was really dangerous. Um, he told a story about this woman in Wisconsin who was on Prozac and she recently committed a murder-suicide and that people all over the country were having really bad side effects from the drug. Uh, if you want to dive down that rabbit hole about how much Scientologists hate prescription drugs, you can listen to the episode about the purification rundown on my other show, The Pine Overcoat Podcast, which I promise I will be releasing new episodes here soon. Uh, anyway, the coroner, Dr. Greathouse, kind of disagreed. He said, you know, researchers over at Eli Lilly have told me that over two million people have taken Prozac and none of them have turned violent. So Dr. Coleman spoke up and he told everyone that he'd tried to coax Wes Becker into going into the hospital just days before the shooting and that he had refused. But he said there was no hint during their last session that Wes Becker was planning any sort of violence against his workplace or anyone for that matter. He also told the court that he didn't consider Wes Becker to be psychotic and that he probably knew exactly what he was doing the day he shot up the printing plant. Um, and really, that was backed up by the fact that he spared a few people's lives. He told those few people, you know, to kind of get out of the way. So next, they called up J James Lucas to testify, who was Wes Becker's friend. And he talked about the hit list that Wes Becker had. Um, and in response, Great House called out Standard Gravure senior executives. And he said, well, did you guys know anything about these threats? And they said, no, we were totally unaware of these threats. So uh, a lot of conflicting reports here. And um, they had 30 witnesses in total and all sorts of complicated details. They had a jury of six. It took them an hour to deliberate. And here's what the jury came up with. Quote, excessive stress placed on Wes Becker by his employer, Standard Gravure, and possibly the effects of psychiatric drugs were factors contributing to the shooting spree. The jury added that their statement should be tempered with the known fact that Mr. Wes Becker was unstable. They decided, however, 
that Westbecker alone was responsible for the eight deaths, this eliminating for the time being further legal repercussions for other parties. So basically they said, you know, we find Mr. Westbecker to be responsible, but Standard Gravure and the pharmaceutical company were contributing factors. On the way out, Vice President Don McCall told the Courier-Journal, quote, I am a little disappointed, to say the least, by the jury's conclusion about stress in the workplace. Westbecker was on long-term leave. The man was not in the workplace for well over a year. Uh, for the record, Eli Lilly made no comment. Now I need to tell you all a little bit about Eli Lilly, the manufacturer of Prozac. And I'm so sorry, but when I try to say Eli Lilly, it kind of comes out in a jumble sometimes. So sorry about that. Uh, but yeah, they were no stranger to trouble. Um, and we can start with something called DES to make that point. That's diethylstilbestrol. And that was an FDA-approved hormone replacement substance that they sold in the 1950s and 60s. And then in 1971, we found out that it was causing vaginal cancer in the offspring of parents who'd taken the drug while they were pregnant. And uh, that, that was a really bad look for them. They, they were still in litigation over that in 1996 when The Power to Harm was written. Um, so that was a big one for them. That, that was a big debacle. Not as big as Oriflex, though. Um, Oriflex is an anti-inflammatory drug. Um, but it came with liver failure, kidney failure, uh, other major stuff, and people were dying. And the problem with this one is that Eli Lilly knew about it, and they didn't report it to the FDA. And nothing happened, really. Uh, they got a $25,000 fine, which is literally nothing to them. Uh, but the Wall Street Journal wrote that Lily's chief medical officer should have gone to prison for that one. So just to give you an idea. Um, but those are just a few examples. Any pharmaceutical company deals with this sort of stuff. Uh, it's really about how they respond to their mistakes and how transparent they are. And apparently Lily doesn't have a great track record when it comes to those things. So let's talk a little bit about Prozac. Uh, Prozac was invented because everyone is depressed and scientists were doing their research and they came up with this train of thought quote if depression is a breakdown of communication between neurons and if that breakdown occurs as a result of an imbalance in neurotransmitter substance then the ideal antidepressant is a substance that acts selectively on the responsible neurotransmitter or its associated receptor sites to rectify the imbalance so in the late 60s, uh, Lilly researchers were theorizing that depression came from a low level of serotonin transmission in the synapses. And so they needed to find a compound containing molecules that would lock onto cell receptors to correct that problem. So this would become selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. You guys know this one, SSRIs. In 1972, Lilly started using computer graphics to visualize the receptor sites and synthesize a compound to correct that reuptake problem. Eight years later, 
Prozac was ready for phase three, human clinical trials. 11 and a half years after the compound had been discovered, they came out with this huge document, the new drug application, which gave details of every patient among the thousands who were in the clinical trials. It was submitted to the FDA, and two years later, in 1985, it was formally recommended by an independent advisory committee of the FDA. Now, recommendation and approval are two different things. There's usually a few months between the two, but for Prozac, it took two years, which is kind of interesting. Uh, Prozac was actually approved in Belgium and South Africa before the United States, uh, which the U.S. approved it in 1987. And in the next two years after that, it was uh, approved in roughly 70 countries. Um, and in the U.S., Lilly sent out nearly 2,000 salesmen to go out and peddle Prozac, and they would target psychiatrists, of course, and they would tell the psychiatrist that it's this great drug because it's as, as effective as these older medications, but with a way better set of side effects. Now, I think we can safely say that's not the whole truth, but that's, that's the very short, sweet version of how Prozac came to be. Now, let's get back to the story. So, Mike Campbell was one of the survivors. Um, and Mike Campbell, you'll hear his name a lot in this story too. He was one of the guys that was consistently more open to talking with the public and talking with reporters. So uh, he was interviewed right after the, the shooting and the first grand jury hearing and all that. And he said that at that time, right after it all happened, there was not a lot of talk about suing Eli Lilly. I mean, there just wasn't. Everybody was still kind of in shock and just focused on getting over the physical and psychological hurdles of recovery. Um, Campbell personally wanted to start a group called the Kentuckians Against Assault Weapons, uh, but that didn't really get any traction. Um, but yeah, they were just thinking about um, getting better and, and moving past it. Um, but Angela Bowman was paralyzed from the waist down. John Stein was suffering from severe neurological complications from the gunshot wound to the head. Um, people were just trying to pick up the pieces and make sense of what the hell had just happened to them. Fast forward to uh, March of 1990. Mike Shea of Standard Gravure announces a donation to the tune of $192,000 to the fund established to aid the victims of the shootings and their families. And they anticipated another half a million coming from their workers' insurance package. But it was right around that time that families of the deceased and their lawyers started talking lawsuits. Is anyone else responsible for this senseless loss of life? And if so, what can we do about it? Three widows in particular, uh, women whose husbands had been killed in the shooting. Uh, their names were Joyce Ventress, Sarah Weibel, and Linda Ganote. And I'm sorry if I got those last names wrong. Um, but they shared the same lawyer, and he was urging everyone to file suit against a whole list of defendants. Standard Gravure, the estate of Joseph Westbecker, Dr. Coleman, Hall Security Service, and of course, Eli Lilly. 
And this is fairly common. I mean, when you're filing a lawsuit like this, it's like shooting fish in a barrel and you kind of just go after everybody and hope one sticks, from what I understand. Um, I've never sued anybody, but... Uh, but he assured these three women that soon enough, uh, survivors would join them in their pursuit of punitive damages from these people and organizations. So they had this whole list of defendants, but Mr. Morris, the lawyer, was really after Eli Lilly right out of the gate. Because, uh, you know, that's where the money was. And the timing was great for them because all these other stories were starting to pop up around the country that people were, in fact, becoming violent after taking Prozac. In fact, that Scientology group was saying that up to 140,000 people in the U.S. had become violent on Prozac. That's a pretty serious number. And stories were popping up on popular TV shows like Donahue and Geraldo, and people were telling these stories of calm, quiet psychiatric patients in hospitals who were turning into these cold-blooded killers after being on Prozac. By 1990, Eli Lilly was facing at least 54 civil and criminal lawsuits across the country, three in the state of Kentucky, including the Westbecker case. And so Lilly was lawyering up. Um, their legal counsel had chosen a Louisville attorney named Edward Stouffer as their potential trial lawyer for all their Kentucky cases. Uh, he was 47. He charged $350 an hour. Uh, he was kind of a big deal. He was part of the firm Bull, Stouffer, and Graves, which was located in a penthouse duplex in the Providian Tower overlooking the river. Pretty swanky. Um, and he actually didn't specialize in product liability. They chose him because he was charismatic and generally well-liked and respected in the community. And what they wanted him to do, what he needed to do, was tell the, quote, true story of Joseph Westbecker. Eli Lilly's motivation to cover their asses was growing. Uh, their stock, which had been on a steady rise, was starting to fall uh, fairly quickly and drastically. And if they lost a big case like Westbeckers, it could be a huge blow for them. On September 14th, 1990, exactly a year after the shooting, the survivors and family members got together and filed an expanded lawsuit against Eli Lilly in Louisville. They would have 15 lawyers involved in representing them. The only person who didn't join them was Jackie Miller, who was the woman, uh, she was shot four times, um, and originally her story was that she was shot while trying to grab the gun from her purse. She had a gun in her purse. And she said that she didn't want to be involved with a lawsuit because she was afraid it could be used in arguments that were pro-gun control. Jackie is interviewed in a 2019 news segment, and I'll talk more about that later, but I think she'd fine-tuned her story a little bit over the years because this time, instead of saying that she was trying to reach for her gun, she said she decided not to grab her gun because if it ended up being nothing, she was afraid she'd be fired for having the gun out. So uh, she said she went to see what was going on without the gun on purpose. Um, she also says in the more recent interview that when she came face to face with Westbecker, he was gone. She said, whatever it is that makes us human was gone. Jackie Miller was shot in the chest, stomach, pelvis, and right leg. 
uh, but that certainly didn't change her mind about her stance on gun control. Uh, she was shot with an AK-47 four times, but she will tell you that she's very blessed. Um, to me, being blessed means not getting shot at all, but uh, to each their own. Um, anyway, uh, Eli Lilly had a public relations chief. His name was Ed West. Such a good character name, Ed West. And um, he was making it known to whoever would listen that they would absolutely not settle this case because they were innocent, they were going to court, and they were going to win. Uh, and this confidence probably came from the fact that A, they were filthy rich, and B, Wes Becker had bought the guns and issued threats well before he started taking Prozac. He'd also been hospitalized multiple times before the Prozac. He had suicide attempts. And so Ed West felt very confident that this all helped establish that Wes Becker was not of sound mind long before Prozac entered the scene. And so that concludes this episode of the Joe West Becker story. Stay tuned for part two of the Joe West Becker story. It'll be coming out soon, and it really starts to put things in more perspective when you start to learn about his early life and high school and his marriages and his kids. And um, I don't know. I don't know if that will change anything for you all as far as what you think about this case, uh, but I can't wait to share it with you. Uh, so stay tuned, and thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>